Welcome to Cato Audio for July 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Dalibor Rohak and Tom Palmer discuss the rise of authoritarian populism. Sally Sattel assesses the sad state of kidney transplantation. Cato's Neil McCluskey evaluates the teaching of controversy in public schools. And author John Pfaff talks about the lesser known causes of so-called mass incarceration. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. The fear of terrorism continues to be a, a problem, uh, especially when you look at numbers related to terrorism in the United States, especially. And to talk about some of what those numbers are in reality, I'm speaking with uh, John Mueller and Trevor Thrall, both senior fellows at the Cato Institute who study a lot of the, the public perception and conduct uh, risk analyses of of uh, what we ought to be spending our money on with respect to terrorism and what should we not be spending our money on at all. So, gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. So let, let me start with uh, you, Trevor. The, the, you all have looked at the numbers related to um, the public perception of the terrorist threat. Uh, what do we know about uh, what people think the terrorist threat looks like? Well, the terrorist threat in people's minds is massive and uh, ongoing. Um, somewhere around three-quarters of the public uh, believe that um, terrorists are, you know, likely to conduct another attack anytime in the next, you know, few months. And, you know, three-quarters of the public thinks that ISIS has people here in the United States capable of carrying out a major attack at any time. And, uh, you know, a similar majority of people want the United States to do something about it. All right. So, um I guess, how does that comport with what we know about what the actual risk of terrorism is based on, of course, historical data? John Mueller? Yeah, well, it's, it's uh, wildly off. Your chance of, you know, the number of people who have been killed by Islamist terrorists since 9-11 is about six per year. I actually ran into a guy at, uh, who's sort of high up in the National Institutes of Health, and I said, you know, if you had a disease to kill six people a year, how much money would you want to spend to eradicate it? And I needless to say, got this appalled look, you know, that you'd even consider that. Um, so it's basically extremely low. The chance of being killed is one in 26 million per year by terrorists and so forth. And it has been ever since 9-11. Even, even if you include 9-11 uh, in the calculation, it's about one in four million per year. Um, so, um, uh, you know, the chance of being killed by lightning is higher. The chance of being killed in automobile accidents about, per year is about one in 8,000. So there's just a huge discrepancy between the fears and the uh, uh, the reality of the fear. So you're saying that more people would be playing the lottery if they thought similarly about the the odds of winning. Yeah, the the the, uh, the lottery is an interesting example because it's basically the lottery. You, know, you can explain to people how irrational it is to play the lottery, and they come back with saying, "Well, my chance is just as good as anybody else's," uh, which is completely irrelevant argument, of course. It's true, but also irrelevant. And the same thing with terrorism. My chance is very low, but it's just as bad as everybody else's. Um, and uh, so it somehow gets wrapped around the same sort of lack of logic. So what drives that? What drives the the persistent uh, fear and concern about terrorism risk in the United States? Well, what I, there's a bunch of reasons uh, I've sort of fiddled with. I'm doing a policy analysis paper for Cato in a month or so, be coming up. Um, and uh, the thing that seems to be most explanatory, at least after the fact for me, is that this is sort of a spooky 
um, foreign-oriented um, conspiracy. Uh, it's linked to some people overseas, and they communicate by Internet or whatever. Uh, and it's a, basically a foreign threat. And what it's similar to is not so much other terrorism, like domestic terrorism, like Timothy McVeigh blowing up the Murrah building in, in Oklahoma City in 1995, uh, but it's more like co domestic communists here about domestic communists, because they, too, were among us. We couldn't tell them—you can't tell by looking at them whether they're communists or not, and they're dedicated, uh, supposedly, to this, you know, subversive uh, international force known as international communism. Uh, or it's like witches in the old days. Uh, the fears of witches were basically linked to the ultimate foreigner, namely the devil, and they were his handmaidens, and you couldn't tell them from other people, but they were up to nefarious deeds, and they were, and people believed that for a couple hundred years. Well, point of fact, the devil is of this earth. Oh, yes. And so— Oh, glad you straightened that out. I, so as long as we're clear on that. So— you know, the media presumably plays into the, into this a lot uh, between CNN and Fox News and MSNBC and, and places like that. Anything that has that smack of terrorism or even potential terrorism is something that, in terms of its coverage, is radiated out or boosted in a significant way. Yeah, John and I were debating this earlier today. There's, you know, if we want to get really wonky about this, there are some real questions about which comes first, the chicken or the egg. And, um, you know, in many ways, you know, John's paper that's going to be coming out illustrates that since 9-11, very little of the, you know, factual goings on in the world, the, the actual lack of terrorism in the United States, the many things the United States has done to improve security in the United States, none of these actual things have changed people's perceptions much at all. And that would include, you know, gallons of news coverage per attack and, you know, anything else happening around the world. So it's not clear how much the media matters. The media does follow on whenever you have a terrorist attack, there's coverage. But it's not really clear how much that matters to keeping the fear going. Um, and the sort of conversely, what's kind of curious is it's if it doesn't really matter in terms of making people scared, um, if we just were able to magically get rid of media coverage of terrorism tomorrow, it's not clear that that would make the fears go away. So, you know, when John talks about witches, it's kind of an interesting analogy. There wasn't, you know, a lot of press coverage of witches, um, but that fear lasted for 200 years anyway. Um, and so it may be the same in the case of terrorism. This, this could be something that we are simply unable to unscare ourselves about. Yeah, that, that includes officials. I mean, Obama tried a little bit. Um, heroically in 2015, saying ISIS does not present an existential threat to the United States, which I thought someone should have said about, you know, Al-Qaeda about 15 years earlier. But finally he said it, and he was the president of the United States, and it had basically no impact whatever. It might have been a little bit bad for him overall to see, make him look like he didn't really appreciate the real, real depths of it. It's also the case the media tend to follow the, you know, what sells. Just to get, let me give you one example. <clears throat> There's an article in the Daily Beast called How, How ISIS's Plan in the United States is Working. And for the teaser, the editorial writers left out the word how, so it became the ISIS plan for terrorism in the United States is working. In other words, you know, just by that slight change, you could basically make it really scary. 
Uh, and that basically, ISIS in particular has been this multi massive hobgoblin since 2014. And anytime they can be worked into a story, that's, you know, anything that happens, say, well, could this be ISIS? Well, it has the earmarks of ISIS. For example, someone got killed, you know. Yeah, you can't uh, prove it's not ISIS. Could <laughs> yeah, be ISIS. No, again, Next right. time it might be ISIS. <laughs> right. It's leading right on and everything. Yes, exactly. And the word you use there, hobgoblin, is, is certainly apt because it is something that um, Lincoln, yes. If the threat is not perceived clearly, um, then it can be magnified many times over. Uh, Donald Trump is, as you and I discussed, not, he's not just a master showman; he's a master threat inflator. Right. Yeah. So, but even it doesn't follow necessarily. If you try to inflate a threat, it's going to work. Um, so it's basically up to the receptiveness of the of the audience. Okay, so you're saying that there's a natural propensity here. If the media, it's not clear that they matter. They're a reflection of the concerns of uh, the public, and um, being somebody who capitalizes on uh, the the public perception of terrorism. Uh, may also merely be a reflection and may not contribute to it significantly. Correct. And and even to go one step further, uh, what's curious is that it's not just that the public has an ingrained fear of terrorism, because the public has been exposed in every country to terrorism forever, and yet it hasn't always been a panic. It's It was a panic after 9-11, and despite the fact that 9-11 is now well in the rearview mirror, it's still a panic, and so it's not—it's not clear. I think one of the things that's really, um, you know, a curious possibility is whether or not the fear—the current fear in America of terrorism—is something akin to a black swan event, a completely unpredictable uh, public reaction that you look back in history and you you find explanations for it, but really beforehand there was no way to anticipate or predict the path of public opinion after 9/11. This just, just may be one of those things that you cannot explain. All right. So in terms of public policy implications, uh, well, what are they? What, what has occurred since the, the sort of, even though the, the salience of an event should have waned by now, it, it hasn't. So what, what does that mean for public policy? Well, one, one would be basically um, you're free to do what you want to do. The, the, the thing is that there's no way, even though they first said we're going to try to make America free, so uh, make uh, America feel safe, uh, and they spent a trillion dollars on domestic homeland security, and it obviously has not reduced the fears at all. So it's very hard to see how you can make the fears lower. Uh, they probably can't necessarily mean higher either. They're already quite high. And so in many respects, that leaves the policymakers free. They might as well do the policy right. And the policy they're dealing with is not, you know, ephemeral it's, or, or, or a side issue like, uh, you know, a bridge to nowhere. Uh, what you're dealing with is the very foundational reason for government, ask Hobbes, which is per personal safety, private. You know, that's why people have governments. They spend a lot of money. They lose civil liberties. They do anything. They just want to be safe. And, and that's extremely important. So that's if there's anything that's a sacred trust to the government, it's providing public safety. First words in the Constitution are preserve domestic tranquility, practically. And so consequently, uh, they should be doing that responsibly. They don't have an infinite amount of money, and therefore they have to choose. And they should be choosing things that reduce risk at low cost as opposed to ones that don't reduce risk very much or are extremely costly. So you say that the, is the incentive, though, that they do do it right? Is that— Trevor Thrall is shaking his head. No, it is not the incentive. No, it's clearly 
the opposite. I, the problem I think you sort of suggested before is that fear sells, and in the post 9/11 era, it's been nigh unto impossible for anyone to any political leader to suggest a you know pulling back in the war on terror. Uh, Obama tried to be very sly about pulling back here and there, renaming it. You know, let's not call it the war on terror anymore. Let's. Uh, I might actually suggest for the first time ever since 9/11 that you know this isn't an existential threat. But then I'm going to carefully not ever say that again because that didn't play too well. I mean, unfortunately, all the incentives for political leaders are to keep on doing things that make it clear to Americans that they're trying to keep you safe from terrorism. So I always thought maybe the the, the uh, response ought to be, hey, look, buddy, freedom is risky. You can't handle it. You know, quit being such a lily-livered wuss and just handle the fact that life has risk and just move on, dummy. That, that's my impulse toward people who are uh, of the, I don't know, chicken hawk brigade or who, whoever that is trying to say, well, look, we, you know, every, it's, it's around every corner. We need to be worried about it, constant vigilance, afraid, afraid, afraid. Well, I've been looking very carefully ever since 9-11 for some politician or you know, major figure in government to say what you just said. And um, I've seen it done twice. <laughs> okay. Once with Mayor Bloomberg in 2008. Um, he said, um, uh, get a life, your chance of being killed by terrorism, like being lightning and so forth. But he had an ulterior motive on that because there's just been a terrorist attack of sorts or planning that in New York at the, at the airport, they're going to blow up the airport, incidentally, a bunch of knuckleheads. Uh, and he's afraid he was going to cut um, tourism to New York. And, and the other one is John McCain about 2004. He said something like that. And he says, you know, your chance of being killed is being killed with a tsunami or something like that. Just watch the thing, watch the, you know, the color-coded thing. And if it goes below yellow, then come out of your house. Well, it never will. It never went below <laughs> yellow. So I wrote him in 2004, asking him, you know, this is. I like your sentiment initially, but it doesn't make any sense when you do it with the color-coded thing, because you're saying everybody should stay in their house forever because they can't. It'll never go below yellow, and he hasn't gotten back to me yet on that. So, but anyway, those are the two examples. Literally, you know, I've looked really hard. Uh, and, uh, you know, I may have missed something here and there. So but I, 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 found it. I guess the relationship is I'm, I'm thinking of Winston Churchill, you know, London can take it. I mean, that was well, you want to talk about a potentially existential threat facing. Well, Obama has said something like that uh, about, you know, we 9-11 was horrible. We, 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 we handled it. We're resilient. We, we, we could uh, go on. So there's something like that, but that hasn't reduced the fears either. And, and, you know, most politicians will admit quietly that terrorism is something that the United States has to learn to live with. But publicly, I mean, frankly, the Republican Party has uh, built itself as being the party of the hawks and national security. And they, they have an institutional and ingrained incentive electorally to, to always, um, you know, inflate threats and then, you know, enact policies that go along with them. I, looking at the 2016 election, you had 17 Republican candidates in the first debate, like tripping over each other to to talk about how you know the world was going to end tomorrow, and the guy who won was the loudest. And so you know I don't think we're in any danger of of people giving up on pressing the terrorism button. Okay, John Mueller, uh, you've done a lot of research on specific terrorist plots mm -hmm. and what those plots actually accomplished, what they looked like what level of organization uh, they had, and how, to what extent they were aided and abetted by uh, federal police agencies. So what 
for our listeners' benefit, what did you discover in all that research? Well, they're basically pretty pathetic. Um, and it, most people have looked at the cases, particularly in the United States or Europe, too, but certainly in the United States. You know, you look at these guys, they were up to no good, and they were talking about killing people, but the idea that they could get their act together to do much of anything uh, is pretty remote. As I mentioned, there's been about 90, there's about 90 uh, plots that have been uh, put into the United—for uh, people who want to do damage in the United States, Islamist terrorists who want to do damage in the United States, whether they're based abroad or in the United States. Of these, 22 have been carried out, essentially. Uh, in other words, the police were not able to stop it. And of the, with the 22, the number of people killed is what I mentioned before, six per year since 9-11, incredibly low number. Uh, even if all those other plots had come to fruition, had not been stopped, in other words, by informants or not and by informants, uh, it's hard to imagine it'd be all that much higher. You have to get it to about 40 before you get to the number of people who are killed each year by lightning, for example. Um, there's a wonderful British comedy called uh, Four Lions by uh, director Chris Morris, uh, and I strongly recommend it because it really looks like the kinds of cases I've looked into. I've done a case book of all the cases, these cases, the 90 cases I mentioned, and so I had to live through these cases. In fact, I've just been working on something related this morning. Um, and more and more, the Four Alliance proves to be not so much fiction, which it is, of course, but uh, the reflecting fact. Um, so art, uh, life imitates art, or maybe it's the other way around in various ways. For example, in one case, they have a thing where they're trying to put these, these four terrorists or five terrorists in, in, in England are trying to put together a bomb and goes off accidentally and kills a sheep. The guy says, well, that's a blow against the agricultural establishment. You know, it's really terrorism. Uh, but then in real life, there was a similar sort of thing in Los Angeles. A bunch of guys were, they, didn't have, they wanted to do some shooting, and they didn't have a gun, so they had to get some money for a gun, so they're robbing a lot of gas stations. And they said, well, that's an act of terror, too. It gets a blow against the petroleum industry. Right. Yeah. So yeah. the truth is frequently equally strange as, as fiction. So uh, related to that, though, when you talk about threat inflation, uh, these terrorists might want to, they might want to seek to inflate the value of a specific act, but we have a long history of the United, the U.S. government at various levels uh, doing the same thing and uh, using the specter of terrorism to boost budgets and to waste a bunch of money. And so, to you, Trevor, through all this th threat inflation problem, it it uh, seems to be, you know, it goes along with what uh, what Hayek said a long time ago. If you're in charge of a department, it is in your best interest to make the things that your department does seem like the most important things that can be done. Yeah, and I think what's really uh, sad to me is that the the people who were mid-level officers. And administrative administration, you know, officials right after 9/11. I'm thinking about people like General McChrystal or General Petraeus, people who fought uh, in tank battles in Iraq or things like that, um, and who became the the architects of the policies in the war on terror that have been so costly and yet have produced so little in the way of. <laughs> fear or danger reduction. These people are now senior people 
calling for more of the same because they now run organizations that are in charge of these things, or they, in order not to seem like they've been um, built a career on a, a losing game, are, are trying to defend what they've been doing for their whole career. So we now have like a generational, like a, the whole the whole failed effort is baked into the to the uh, bureaucracy baked into the political system now. Yeah, and there's a whole lot of people selling to the government, of course, too. And if the government says it really needs about, you know, 20 million new x-ray machines and you're selling x-ray machines, uh, you're there very, very quickly. And when you get there, you don't say, you, actually, you don't really need these x-ray machines, but I have some nice ones if you want to buy them. Instead, well, obviously, you, you're right about that thread out there. Uh, and here we have the solution, which is my x-ray machine. So it's a bit of a weather vane problem. Yeah. Well, it's where the money is. I mean, it's that they're just doing their they're just doing their job of finding customers and, uh, and servicing, uh, servicing them. Okay. So, uh, you know, terrorism, like anything else that's an activity that uh, people are concerned about, it to the extent the government is spending money on it, you've created constituencies for the continuation of that spending. And unlike the market, the, the Department of Homeland Security can't go bankrupt if, it is, if it's mismanaged, like any other government department, of course. All right. That's a lot. Of, you've given me some cold comfort here, I guess. I mean, you, you, uh, I'm, I'm properly convinced that we overthink the risk of terrorism. The public clearly is not, and there isn't a clear way to uh, get people to get out of that sort of visceral uh, re reactionary mode in, in dealing with the problem of terrorism. So how do we get people to change their minds or at least get them to accept the fact that life is risky and I prefer freedom? Uh, that's that's probably too much to ask uh, all at once for any political leader. I think the thing that would be a good step in the right direction uh, is to in, and this is the subject of a policy analysis that I'll have coming out in the next month or so, but uh, is to pull back uh, very, very sharply in the war on terror uh, so that at least we're not causing uh, new terrorists and, and new problems and so that the overall expenditures can come down significantly. I mean, if the war on terror stopped tomorrow, we would have spent $5 trillion or more dollars on it. It's hard to even put a, you know, imagine that what that kind of money means. Um, and it's, so it's such a waste. If, if we had to continue to spend a certain amount of money, I, I think a politician could argue, hey, I've decided that's not the right way to fight terror anymore. We're going to keep fighting terror for you, but we're going to do it in this new, smarter, and oh, by the way, it happens to be less expensive way. We might be able to do that. Yeah. And in terms of the domestic terrorism, uh, the, the, the numbers are about a trillion dollars have been spent in, over what was spent previously uh, since 9-11 on it. Um, and within that, I, working with Mark Stewart, we've done a number of books, three, a third one coming out later this year, on trying to use risk analysis for that. And what we find, uh, to, basically, you have to spend money on security. You want to spend it well. You want to, get, you want to save a lot of lives and not spend money on measures that save very few lives. But it's not clear that TSA, uh, TSA or D Department of Homeland Security is even in that mode. For example, there's just a piece in the Washington Post maybe a month ago about airline security, and they talked to a former um, uh, head of TSA, and he said, well, we have to keep all those layers because they all reduce risk. Well, that's complete idiocy. <laughs> I mean, the issue is, of course, they all reduce risk. You put one security guard one place in one corner, and it increases security. The question is, does it reduce security? Does it increase, reduce risk or increase security by enough to justify its cost? That's exactly, you know, it's elemental, obviously. And they simply haven't done that. 
Uh, nor is the—it won't be surprising to learn, nor has the Trump administration. They're trying to cut TSA in some places, but what they've done is recommend reducing uh, some uh, measures, which actually are really quite cost-effective, whereas there's a huge one, namely the air marshals, which costs out a billion dollars a year, which provides very little security, is incredibly expensive, and which can be very easily reduced simply by having a hiring freeze. That's politically easy. Uh, and they, they didn't even bring that one up. Well, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. Two forthcoming policy analyses from Cato Senior Fellows John Mueller and Trevor Thrall. And uh, John Mueller has a book coming out. I believe the title is Are We Safe Enough? So those uh, policy analyses will be available very soon. And if you want to keep reading Cato's work, uh, fighting the fight on behalf of getting people to think rationally about terrorism, you can do so at Cato.org. Across the globe, the signs are clear that authoritarian populism is on the rise. What's driving it, and what can libertarians do to turn the tide in favor of freedom? Dalibor Rohak, a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and Tom Palmer, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, discussed the issue at the Cato Institute's 40th anniversary celebration in May. So first of all, it's not something that started last year. So if you, if you look at political parties that can be broadly classified as right-wing populist authoritarian, and you look at the vote share going to those sorts of parties in Europe, you see a trend that has been steadily increasing since early 1980s. These parties have been around for, in, many case, in some cases, since, in, since 1950s or 1970s. They've gradually become better at doing politics. Um, and, and what we are seeing today um, is, is a simple continuation of the, of, of the trend. Um, now, the question of why people vote for, 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 for these parties is, is a subject of really interesting academic debate. You have, you have two big streams of literature that tries to uncover that. So, so the first stream of literature looks at uh, individual level drivers of populist votes. So why do people as individuals cast votes for, for these parties? What are the characteristics of individuals that, that do that? And, and so typically you have surveys done in individual countries at specific elections, and, and, and then you try to uh, establish a link between, between voter characteristics and, and, and voting for, for populists. Um, there, it looks like there isn't a simple sociological characteristic of voters that vote for these parties. It's not necessarily a question of, of, of income or poverty or, or education. Uh, it's more a question of perceptions, uh, identity, culture, sense of grievance that might not be reflected in reality. So income is not a strong predictor of voting for populists, uh, but perception of, of economic deprivation uh, deprivation is. So, so you have this uh, slightly messy literature that looks at individual level drivers, uh, the sort of the demand for populism, and then on the other side you have literature that, that deals with country characteristics that uh, are associated with success of populists. So there you are looking at individual, uh, at country level uh, data instead of individual level data. And, and, and there are a couple of, I think, really interesting studies done. Uh, the first one uh, by a bunch of authors that looked at the experience of the Great Depression 
where uh, in countries that experienced the most severe economic downturn in the early 1930s, um, th those countries also then experienced uh, the largest rise in populist vote. And that effect was particularly strong if those countries were on the losing side of the First World War or had very little experience of, uh, of liberal democracy beforehand. So when you had fertile ground for, for these kinds of movements, uh, together with an economic shock, then you had the big effect. And, and, and there was a more recent paper done, uh, I think last year, that, that looks at all the financial crises from 1870 to 2014, where they find that whenever you have not just an economic downturn, but a, but a big financial crisis, that leads to an increase of the vote share going to uh, far-right populists by up to 30% within five years of that initial economic shock, and it sort of gradually goes back, to, uh, goes back to normal, if there is another election, that is. It, it, it's a difficult question to know what's causing when you have so many countries and so many different experiences. One thing that's remarkable is the fact that the populist leaders do see themselves in a common cause. So Le Pen and uh, Petri and Germany and so on, they do see themselves as a kind of anti- liberal in the classical sense, international. And there is connection, and of course they all are now claiming that Trump is supporting them and boosting that, look, America has gone down this road, surely this is the right path for us. Uh, constitutional republics have failed, America has rejected that, they're really pumping that up, I think, excessively, uh, and claiming that they have this global mandate. But it's not clear that there are common economic causes. I'm very skeptical of a lot of that. John Judas has a new book out. It's a very good political history of populism, but the economics, I think, is, is just not very convincing, his argument for an economic cause. Uh, there was a crisis, and afterwards there was some populism in some countries and not in others. Why some, why not others? Uh, it's not really clear. I think that we do need to look at uh, psychological foundations. Uh, Jonathan Haidt has been addressing this, and he pointed and directed me to Karen Stenner's studies of authoritarianism, and two of the drivers of, an, of triggering authoritarianism are one, a perception of fallen social status, uh, and the Germans certainly experienced that after the war. They said, we won in the East, and we were stabbed in the back and betrayed, and so on, after the First World War. Uh, but a fallen social status combined with a perception of an external threat. And in this case, we have Islamism, uh, even if it's statistically a tiny chance of any one of us being harmed by it, it's a 24-hour news cycle, constant pictures of terrorist attacks someplace, and that generates a feeling of uh, being under siege. And those two features in combination seem to trigger very strong authoritarian responses. We need a leader, a strong hand who will protect us uh, from these changes. So I think we need to look at those features. One other that I think has not got enough attention, but I think it's very important, is the fragmentation of media. We've lost trust in the media as such, and sometimes for good reasons. There is such a thing as media bias. We certainly are aware of that. Uh, but at the same time, a fragmentation that makes it difficult to see what the brand name is. If something is in the Wall Street Journal, I'm much more likely to quote it than if it's in the, uh, the Denver Guardian, which is a, a fake news site. It's called the denverguardian.com. It looks like a real news site. It's one of these ones that sprung up. 
you think it's a real newspaper, it's not. It's just this phony thing. And there are now thousands of those. And it's very hard for us. I've even been, been fooled by these. Said, my God, is that true? And I go and check, it's not. Uh, and this has led to a general uh, lack of confidence in stories about our societies, about what's really true in the world. And that fragmentation is a, is a serious problem. We need to help to reestablish the idea of credibility in media, that there's fact checkers and so on and so forth, because there is this utter explosion uh, of nonsense on the internet, and it's very difficult for people to know. So I, have a, I have a paper which is in the working paper stage right now with, with two co-authors. One of them is Andreas Johansson Heiner, who is a Swedish political scientist, where we look at <coughs> data from European elections between 1980 and 2016, uh, and trying to identify the correlates of, of, of a large share going of those going to right-wing populist parties, and what we find out is that uh, economic factors as such at country level don't seem to matter that much. Um, inequality doesn't seem to matter that much. Immigration doesn't seem to matter that much. All the sort of things that you would expect to matter uh, are only very weakly related to this vote share of, of far-right populism. But one thing that really matters a lot um, are indices of corruption whether it's the World Bank's uh, control of corruption metric or, or, or a few other uh, very similarly constructed uh, indices. So those are very strongly related uh, with, with the vote share going to authoritarian populists on the right-wing side. And, uh, and I think that goes back to this question of trust. I mean, at the moment when people really become nihilistic and, and totally disenchanted with with, with the political establishment, they, they stop seeing a difference between, let's say, Emmanuel Macron in France and, and Marine Le Pen. There are many people on the far left in France who are not going to vote on, uh, on Sunday because they just lost any kind of trust in, 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 in political institutions being able to, being able to deliver. So, so I think it's an important part of, 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 of the overall story. Kidney disease kills more than 50,000 people each year, more than auto accidents, drug overdoses, or suicides. And yet there are ways that could help reduce that number while saving millions of dollars in healthcare spending. Sally Sattel is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. She discussed the sad state of kidney transplantation at the Cato Institute in May. I got a kidney. In fact, I got two. I got one in 2006 and one in 2000, one last summer. And, um, and it, but it was that first experience that back in 2006 that really galvanized me about this issue and the shortage. Um, and it wasn't the surgery. It was the search for a donor. Uh, now, I was very lucky in the end, although it was kind of a long and tortured search, um, uh, a friend did uh, help me out a glorious human being, someone I wasn't even that close to. I'm eternally grateful to her for sure. Um, I didn't have any uh, family who could do it. So, um, so she did it. Basically, she saved me. She spared me dialysis, which, as you've heard, is it, it does keep people alive for a while, but it is a guarantee of premature death and a fairly poor quality of life. And um, 
of the 98,000 people who are waiting for a kidney uh, right now, and the, the, the total wait list is 120,000, um, uh, the majority of them will get uh, a kidney from a deceased donor, and they will wait and wait and wait to the point where 12 of them tomorrow at this time will die because they couldn't survive that wait. So, um, so I got one kidney, as I mentioned, um, in 2006, and another from another friend. I mean, I, I'm running out of earthbound saints here. And um, so I'm a poster girl for altruism, clearly. But I'm not that starry-eyed about what isn't just the most glorious virtue on earth to say that uh, that should be our policy. And in fact, that is our policy. The um, 1984 National Organ Transplant Act has enshrined altruism as the sole legitimate motivation for receiving uh, a kidney. And that means that anyone who gives anything of so-called valuable consideration, money, a car, a vacation, um, to someone who needs a kidney, and that person who, or any donor, or any organ, and that person who accepted this valuable consideration could actually could, could be uh, prosecuted for a felony. That would be a $50,000 fine and or five years in prison. So um, the topic of this is obstacles to organ donation. And uh, I would say that our current law is actually posing a considerable uh, obstacle to that. Our ban on uh, the ban against enriching donors. Now, I'm not talking about uh, the need for a classic free market. Some have. That's certainly not where I'm going. But uh, I uh, believe that it's time uh, that we um, think about ways to incentivize people to donate, both living and deceased, uh, in order to increase the supply, to reward people who are willing to save the life of a stranger. And we've gone to this point because since 1987, which is effectively when UNOS went into effect, we, we have tried everything. We've tried educating people about the need. We've, people signed their organ donor cards. Um, now we have tax, um, some tax forgiveness for expenses that, uh, that um, donors encounter. You know, a poor people are not even in a position to, um, to, to uh, uh, afford the time off uh, for, to even be a donor if they wanted to. Uh, we, we've tried everything. Uh, we've gotten better, and we have gotten better at getting uh, at emergency rooms and solicitation of, uh, of deceased, of the families of deceased people to uh, give their uh, loved ones organs. We even have swaps and chains, which I'm sure you've heard of, which are brilliant innovations. But again, they've just provided about 500 new organs last year. Every one of them precious, but 500 out of 98,000 is not, it's not a, a, a policy. So um, here's a general idea. Again, rewarding people who are willing to save the life of a stranger. Um, I strongly believe this is something we should study. I'm just going to outline a particular model. Um, what kinds of ways could we reward people? Well, how about a tax credit? How about a contribution to a retirement account? Or a tuition voucher for their kids? Or a tuition voucher for themselves if they're in graduate school? Uh, or loan forgiveness? Or um, a donation that they could forward to a charity of their choice. We'd use the same allocation system that exists now, you know, through UNOS. It's basically first, it's first, basically a first come, first serve uh, kind of system. Um, obviously, people would follow the traditional 
uh, uh, procedure now, which is to be enormously well-informed. Even if you wanted to give a kidney to me tomorrow, it would take us three months because they build in a lot of, and I think rightly so, build in a lot of uh, time there for you to really think about it, you know, for people to really understand what they're getting into, what the surgery is about, will there be any, what kind of side effects they may have, what kind of lasting impact that might have, make sure they're not pressured into it. You know, it's really a decision they're making after they've thought it through. Of course, all those protections would continue to be in place. Uh, who would pay for these rewards? And uh, there's a general consensus that the value would be around 50,000. That's just a consensus. Um, but that could all come easily from the dialysis saving. So again, I've heard people talk about uh, dignity issues and exploitation, but when you think about it, right, if the people are well informed, if their health is protected, if we respect their capacity to make decisions in their own best interest, low income or not, in fact, we don't even know who will want to participate in this kind of thing. Granted, I don't think it's hedge fund managers, but um, we don't necessarily know who will. That's something that'd be interesting to study. Um, and if we express gratitude, you know, where is the threat to dignity and, and who's being exploited? So just to uh, sum up, uh, the model we have now, which is based on an, an altruism, is, again, based on a lovely sentiment. But if you actually look at the uh, congressional transcripts from 1983, when the, um, actually it originated in the House, and it was spearheaded by then-Representative Al Gore, he talked about the possibility that volunteerism might not be enough, and that we should consider incentives if it proves not to be enough. Well, it's proven not to be enough. And uh, we have to keep in mind that's just one model, it's just one way to do this, is through altruism, and another way to explore, and I think we've reached the point where we seriously have to, is again, rewarding people who are willing to save the life of a stranger. Public schools were created to bring diverse people together and inculcate shared values thought necessary for democracy. But teaching children about highly charged topics remains difficult, and schools would generally prefer to avoid the controversy. Neil McCluskey, director of the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom, discussed the problem in May. Berkman and Pletcher, to um Political scientists and at Penn State uh, wrote a book, came out in uh, 2010, called Evolution and Creationism and the Battle of, to Control America's Schools. And if you know, you know your scopes monkey, if you've read Inherit the Wind, you know that evolution and creationism is a major controversial issue and has been for almost a century at least now. Well, what they found was two-thirds of biology teachers, high school, public school biology teachers that they surveyed, basically soft-pedal or completely avoid evolution. And they do it uh, in many cases because they are trying to avoid <coughs> conflict. They, it makes their job, if nothing else, a lot harder if people are sort of angry with each other. And they sure don't want to hear from parents on either side who go to the principal and say, what is this teacher teaching? And so it seems that, at least in part to dodge controversy, they sort of miss this really fundamental scientific issue. Uh, and the fact of the matter is we want peace. Um, uh, and I think in, in a diverse society, sometimes the easiest way to get peace is just to say, let's, let's not talk about the things that we disagree about. Uh, and then there's a question about, you know, we want 
teachers ideally to deal with all sorts, to, to provide diverse viewpoints to students so they can make their own decisions. But how do you really do that in practice? And Alexander Michael John, uh, he noted in his famous 1938 speech about uh, free speech and public schools, he said, we shouldn't ask, shall we have any communists on our faculties? But he said, how can we get enough communists to give proper expression of a view which runs counter to the general trend of habit, emotion, interest, or the community at large. And his point was, was largely, if you want viewpoints represented, the way to do it is really to have people who believe in those things be the ones who are presenting it to students, because they're the ones who are going to give it the most rigorous presentation. But think about the difficulty of that. You know, today, maybe the problem is that we don't have enough communists on our faculty. Maybe it's that some districts, how do you get enough evangelical Christians? Or how do you get enough transgendered faculty? How do you get enough gun toters? Or how do you get enough people who want to ban guns? Or make America great again? Or how, how do you get enough immigrants? Or even how do you get enough libertarians on your faculty? And the list sort of goes on, and it becomes kind of an impossible game of balancing. I mean, I can't imagine any local school board that comes up with an algorithm and able to then also hire the people so they get the exact right balance of every issue to represent it. So one of the things that we've seen is there's been research on teaching civic values um, and just historical knowledge, but also, you know, what you know about civics, whether or not you volunteer in your community, and what they, a lot of that research has found, and uh, Patrick Wolf at the University of Arkansas sort of summarized it, schools of choice seem to do a better job with that. And it's possible, I don't think it's ever been proven, but it's possible they do a better job of that because if people agree on what the school is teaching that they enter, then they can agree on what the curriculum is, and then you can have a much more rigorous curriculum. You can probably even have much more rigorous debates because you say, look, we agree that these are the values that are important. And maybe in a way that becomes safe for people to say, so let's talk about other views of this, understanding that we think this is right. America imprisons too many people. Americans constitute 5% of the world's population, and yet we hold nearly one quarter of its prisoners. In his new book, Locked In, The True Causes of Mass Incarceration and How to Achieve Real Reform, law professor John Pfaff argues that the war on drugs and other federal policies receive outsized attention in the popular movements for criminal justice reform, while local institutional actors go virtually unmentioned. He spoke at the Cato Institute in April. First of all, eight, not 80, 8% 8 of all prisoners are in a private prison. Eight, 92% in the state, 8% in privates. And if you're gonna complain about how terrible things are in CCSA's eerie correctional facility, you better be ready to talk about Pelican Bay as well, right? Where the guards would stage gladiator fights and then film them while the guard prisoners killed each other and then laugh about it afterwards, right? That was an entirely state facility. Most private prisons are in just five states. And there's no evidence that states with private prisons saw any faster growth than states without them. There's no evidence they had any impact at all. Bigger deal, it has nothing to do with profit and everything to do with incentives. 
Here's your standard private prison horror story. The state enters into a contract with the prison and pays it per prisoner per day. The prison officials then decide to cut spending on training and programming and food and resources to get their per diem costs down just below what the state is paying them so they get a little bit of profit per prisoner. They then take that profit out of the prison and use it for their own ends and then seek to maximize the number of bodies in their prison every day because that's how they maximize profit. They'll fight reform. They, do, they actually favor recidivism because that brings bodies back and that just means more money. That's a horrible situation. That's a terrible situation. And what I've just described is the entirely public sector arrangement in Louisiana. There's not a single private prison in the story I just told you. The state facing capacity constraints entering into contracts with county sheriffs to house state prisoners in county jails. Per prisoner per day, the sheriffs cut back on funding, spending, took the profits out to actually pay for their own departments outside of the jail, and then fought against every reform because any reform would mean they would lose money. It's not profit. If you incentivize a public actor to act in a selfish way, that public actor will act no more or less selfishly than a private actor. Why not create contracts that reward based on recidivism rates, not based on per prisoner per day? Australia just opened a prison that does this. Pennsylvania just changed all their halfway house contracts to have a, have a recidivism provision in them that provides bonuses if you, if you beat your target and takes your contract away if you don't. Right? It's not that it's a profit, it's that we fund the wrong things. But the problem is that by focusing so much of our attention on the private sector, we ignore the public sector, and that's what drives this. Mass incarceration is a public sector failing. We talk about the profits that private prisons make. They make $400 million a year in profit. That is a lot of money. I would gladly take that. That would just about pay for private school in New York City for a year. We have three kids. It's not pleasant. Um, we spend $50 billion a year on corrections. Half to 75% of that is wages. Who, in fact, is profiting? If someone's profiting off prisons, it's the guards, not the private prisons, far more. And here's a great example. New York State has shed 25,000 prisoners since 1999. It's the longest successful sustained decarceration the, American, the US has seen since mass incarceration started. Yet somehow, amazingly, we are spending more on prisons now than we did in 1999. We have no private prisons, none, 0.0%. People talk about these horrible contract terms and private prison contracts, these, these minimum capacity terms. You must pay us as if we have at least 80% of our beds filled. If you have less than 80%, you pay us as if there's someone in that bed. They call it the low crime tax. It's terrible. New York State is littered with half-empty prisons, fully staffed with guards. Tell me the difference between what New York State is doing and the private prison minimum capacity contract term. There is no difference. We are paying prisons to stay open with no, with no prisoners in them because the guard unions are very successful at keeping their jobs. Pennsylvania closed two prisons, laid off three guards. <laughs> Either those are the three most productive guards in American penological history, or they just don't fire people. And when you hear about those savings, we're gonna save $35,000 per prisoner we set free. That's wrong if you don't lay people off, right? The marginal cost outside of wages and benefits is usually one third to one seventh the average cost we hear all the time, right? So those savings just aren't there if you're not willing to tackle labor. This month marks 10 years of yours truly hosting the Cato Institute's daily podcast, which is downloaded around 3 million times each year. On the Cato Daily Podcast, I speak with Cato scholars, journalists, outside experts, authors, members of Congress, policymakers, and sometimes people who just have something interesting to say. You can subscribe at iTunes, listen online at cato.org slash podcast, and it's also available on the Cato Audio app. Consider it a personal favor. 
That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.